My guest today is Dr Catherine Rowe, a GP working in Stockport for the last 17 years. She specialised in menopause as a subject area to improve patient support. Kath has been working with the Greater Manchester Wellbeing Programme to deliver sessions about how we can look after ourselves through the different stages of menopause and the things that we might want to pay attention to. Welcome, Kath. Hi, Shani. So from the work that we've done together and your experiences as a GP, there are lots of myths and misunderstandings about what menopause is. Can you please help define what what menopause is? Yeah, um, so I guess starting with what menopause actually means, the term refers to a year and a day after your last period. Um, So that's the kind of clinical diagnosis. But in reality, lots of people have variable cycles, variable periods. So it doesn't fit for everybody to make the diagnosis around a year and a day for different people use different kinds of contraception that might stop their periods. And so actually it's better in many ways to think about it from the symptoms that we start to suffer. There's an average age of menopause of 51. But actually, if you think about if that's average... 50% of people will be starting menopause well before or or going through menopause well before that and actually starting with symptoms for for some people many years before they actually go through the menopause itself. And that period before you really hit that menopause phase is called perimenopause. Yeah. What are some of the symptoms that people should look out for? So as we've said before, oestrogen affects every tissue in our body from the top of our heads to the tip of our toes, really. So everything from skin, eyes, mouth, so dry skin, hair thinning, dry hair, dry mouth, to heart symptoms, so palpitations, to some people get breathing problems, so breathlessness, to abdominal symptoms, so constipation or diarrhoea or tummy pains. And that's even before we hit the the women's bits that, that we refer to, so irregular periods or with vaginal dryness and symptoms there. Another big symptom is around joint pains and tiredness in general. And I guess the one that quite a lot of my patients complain of and certainly I can identify with is brain fog, uh, which can be really debilitating and especially from a work perspective. In fact, I've spoken to a lady this week who said at the moment she's only getting symptoms one week in the month. But for that one week, she goes into work. She's in quite a high-powered job and she just cannot function. She can't think, she can't process things. So it really is that oestrogen supplies every bit of our bodies and can really be quite significant in its impact, really, when we don't have it there. There's also clinical menopause as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's, the, I guess, a more natural menopause that, that um, many people will go through just naturally when as the ovaries start to wind down. But there can be uh, medically induced menopause or surgically induced menopause. So for women going through chemotherapy or treatment for cancer, they will sometimes go through an early menopause as a result of the treatment. But also women having a hysterectomy, particularly where the ovaries are removed, there's a sudden removal of oestrogen from people's bodies, which can be a real shock to the system. And of course you've described some of the symptoms, some of the things that we might need to look out for. What about the impacts that this has on us, both physically, psychologically? What are you seeing when you talk to people? 
Yeah, I think the the impact is just so important, Shenny, and actually much more important than symptoms because some people can get on with different symptoms quite well, whereas they will impact on others significantly. I think um, mental health is something really to, to speak about as a standalone, really, because women will often, over time, start to feel a bit more anxious, a bit more worried, and maybe put it down to um, family stresses or work stresses. But actually, when they think back, it's not something that they used to struggle with. And certainly I can identify with that confidence and, and self-doubt that comes in that, that was something I'd never experienced before. And alongside that mood swings, anger, real anger at times, and depression. Again, you know, the, the risk of suicide goes up around menopause in women just because people just can't cope with this change and, and the impact that it is having on them. And the last couple of years, we've focused a lot more on menopause, not because it's something that's arisen from the pandemic or the ways that we work, for example, but actually it's always been there. We've just not had the ability to be able to, or the confidence to be able to talk about it openly. Yeah, isn't isn't that strange that uh, something that has gone on forever, uh, as long as women have walked the earth, is only something now that we're feeling much more comfortable to talk about. And, you know, I think we would all recognise a bit of that, that, you know, you don't want to be admitting that you're going into that phase of life. And it's so refreshing to be able to talk about it, to be able to talk about, you know, yeah, I'm there, I'm sweating (laughs) or whatever. And to be able to feel more able to talk about vaginal symptoms, sexual dysfunction, all those kind of things. I think it just feels a much better place to be. And, And, you know, if I think about my day to day job in general practice, there was a time then people, they might mention it in passing, but not book a whole consultation to talk about this. And I just think it's so important that it is recognised and that we can then go on to start to think about, well, how will we treat it and how will we respond to that new awareness and want to do things differently? And do you think there's been some benefits from the developments that have gone on around mental health? You know, it's okay not to be okay. Are we just more comfortable talking about those, what previously used to be quite difficult subjects? I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. We've gone from the more robotic era of we're all fine, thank you very much, very British, you know, let's get on with life and and behind closed doors, let's suffer, to, yeah, let's recognise and admit that we're struggling. Because if we do that, we can move on to, to the solutions. And so, yeah, I'm sure that probably COVID has sparked some of that specifically, hasn't it? Just allowing us to be ourselves much more freely and talk about how we feel and what we might be able to do about it. And you and I know that when we started doing running the workshops, we thought we'd put, put a couple on, see how we get on. And of course, we've been inundated with colleagues, with people across our health and care system wanting to find out more, wanting to step in that space, and have actually been very open about their personal journeys, which surprised me a little bit. Yeah, it's been brilliant. I mean, we went from maybe 40 40 people on the first one to 120 on the most recent one. And 25 minutes of chat at the end the other week where I thought, I'm not sure people are going to ask any questions. And we just, we had to draw things to a close with more questions left to go. And yes, people sharing about their mental health, people bringing on their medications to talk about those, uh, people talking about sexual dysfunction, talking about it being uncomfortable to have sex, talking about vaginal dryness and irritation, things that, you know, they're the things that you, perhaps because uh, we're doing virtual sessions, that makes that bit more easy to talk about than sitting in a room and putting your hand up and admitting it. But brilliant that those conversations are coming out and brilliant that we can start to have people 
chart their symptoms, monitor their symptoms and go along feeling empowered to ask for the right thing. Because Shani, you'll know that I'm slightly unusual at the moment as a clinician and as a GP in having this interest in menopause and having done much more training. It Thankfully, the, the, the numbers of people training are going up and up and up and that is brilliant. But what I've said on those sessions is if people can chart their own symptoms and have some level of expectation of what they need and why they might need it, then they can go and pretty much say, this is the three things that I want. Can you let me have those? And, you know, to seek that actively rather than just go away if the first person that they speak to either doesn't feel able to do that or comes back with a a bit, bit of a negative option for them. And of course, we know that the workshops are having a massive impact because people come back and tell us that they've gone to their GP and been a lot more confident about asking for the support they need. It feels so exciting to be part of this, the energy in those sessions. Because when you start preparing a session, you know, when I was preparing, I was thinking, what, what what do people want to know? And I very much targeted it at what do I want for me? And so then, so started with what kind of symptoms people might experience, but then into, so what do I ask my GP and what treatment should I expect? And I think even just knowing that, I think a lot of people on the sessions have had a few symptoms and not quite been sure Uh, whether to go trouble the doctor uh, with the problems. And some have got their prescription and didn't know if to start taking it because of some of the worries and concerns about risks and things that have been in the press, certainly over many years. So yeah, if the sessions are just enabling people to feel that they can go and ask for it or can start the treatment, then that for me is an absolute success. And of course, we know that for some women, menopause does have an impact on the workplace and actually can be quite detrimental to careers. What kind of things have you you heard from from some of your patients? Yeah, Shani, you know, and it's it's a massive potential problem. And I think a lot of people, again, have just kind of shifted their work, done something slightly different to allow for the changes that have happened. But as we're becoming more aware of uh, the impact of menopause and the, the option of treatment, I think it's becoming much more apparent that there has been a significant impact on um, people's ability to undertake their normal jobs. And as we've referenced before, people not being able to stand and do presentations. Uh, If I just use myself as an example, uh, on Teams meetings, I had COVID two years ago and was on Teams meetings after that where I just, my brain would go blank and I had no idea where I was going and had a sea of faces looking at me. And, you know, I think that's replicated widely across the professional population to the point that people have had to not do things or been disciplined as a result of that. And so I think aside from women seeking treatment, workplaces should start to think much more about how they can respond to the changes that are happening for what are a significant part of a productive workforce. And so allowing for people to have time to prepare themselves for meetings, maybe thinking, talking to to women about, well, actually, how do you want to do this presentation? Is there a different way that would work for you? So having that two-way discussion about so supporting people through the change and also supporting people that perhaps haven't sought treatment yet to, to maybe go down that avenue. So we do need our workforces and our workforce employers to be much more willing to recognise that this is an issue and to adapt 
the way that people do their work. I think COVID in some ways, I've spoken to many people that have said through COVID, it's been fine because I've worked at home and been able to be flexible and, you know, open the window when I've wanted to. Um, A lady I spoke to a couple of weeks ago said, you know, I've now gone back into the workplace where I have no fan, there's no air conditioning. I'm told I'm not allowed a fan because of COVID risk. And so I'm now suffering in my workplace and wondering what to do. Well, that just doesn't feel right or acceptable. So these are things I think we need to be starting to be really have, have mature conversations within workplaces about how we respond to those so that we don't have people having to leave their jobs when they've still got 10, 15, maybe longer years ahead of them to be able to deliver you know, effective work. And some of the biggest challenges we have across health and care are workforce challenges. Absolutely. And if we think about nearly 80% of our workforce is female, it's really important that we do pay attention to that, do make the adjustments, do support people to bring their whole selves to work hot flushes and all. Yes, exactly. Do you think enough is being done at the moment with our managers? I think it would be difficult for me to say because it's sitting in my general practice, you know, from what I see about people that are coming in, I think it's very different in different places. But I think it's important that we make sure that training in menopause is something that that applies to everybody. So to managers of teams, uh, directors of companies, clinicians as well you know that we do need to all recognize this and to be able to to be trained to have the cut the right conversations with people that are supportive not punishing yeah lots of punitive measures that Mm -hmm. we hear about all the time Mm -hmm. and of course you've touched on um, training and learning developing the skills that we need in the workplace but is there also something about encouraging your clinical colleagues to also step into these spaces so we have a better understanding of what menopause might look like for patients. Absolutely. I have become incredibly energised by this topic and really want to be able to spread the word and I'm pulling colleagues in wherever I can. And I think there's the the sharing the, the impact, but also, as you'll know, a lot of clinicians, you know, before I took up my menopause training, um, you pretty much as a GP learn a lot on the job. And because people weren't coming in, you don't know. And then when somebody does come in, it's flicking through our BNF, our prescribing Bible, to think, what what do we prescribe? What's the best thing? So it hasn't had the focus that it's needed. It's starting to move in that direction, but it does need people to... I mean, I think that on one hand, it needs some of the place level training for clinicians to make sure that we build people's skill set broadly. But we need to be looking at making sure we've got clinicians in each PCN, so in each group of practices and at practice level to be taking on that that ownership. So what I guess my aim would be to have our women get the right thing first time. Because so many of us, including myself, not recognising my symptoms early enough, seek many consultations before we get to where we need to get to and have investigations for symptoms that clearly are menopause related, but we haven't recognised it early enough. And that misdiagnosis is something that we hear again and again Mm -hmm. and again, don't we? Absolutely. You mentioned earlier on, you alluded to HRT and perhaps the bad rap it's had over previous years. And part of that education that you're talking about is when it's when it's delivered well it's really helpful for women are there also lifestyle things that we need to think about as well absolutely and i think part of the other reason one of the many reasons why i'm energized by the subject is because it gives a whole conversation with patients with with women 
around midlife's an opportunity to, to change things, to change the direction, you know, so to start looking at your risk factors, to think about the things that you can do differently. Uh, it also happens to be a time when women are very busy generally with work, with family, with elderly relatives, you know, so there's a lot going on for people and often they put themselves last. So having that conversation about, well, okay, you might be a little bit overweight and your blood pressure might be not right. You might be pre-diabetic, so have, have that risk of diabetes. But if you get onto HRT and that gives you the motivation to feel better and to start to do some of the things differently, that can actually, one, make you feel better, but actually, two, reduce a whole load of risks in your longer term. So, yeah, for me, it's a... Again, not a punitive conversation with patients about, you know, you need to look at your weight, you need to increase your activity, but look at the opportunity to live your life better alongside HRT or, you know, lifestyle only if you choose it and and really make a difference to the way that you feel. We've had many patients that have been refused HRT because their blood pressure's up or because, and some of these people talked on, on the last session, uh, because blood pressure's up or because they're overweight. Well, actually, flip it round to get onto the right treatment and you will feel better. And then you can think about the exercise, the stopping smoking, the things you'll feel better and therefore feel more as if you want to do those things. Uh, but actually, when you do those things, they reduce the risk of things like breast cancer and cardiovascular disease that we've been so worried about with HRT. So it's, it's a win-win if we think about the lifestyle side of things, for most definitely. And I love the way you talk about flipping the conversation, because mm. one of the things that we've been discussing across the whole of the wellbeing programme is we perhaps need to shift from asking what's the matter with you to what matters to you. Shenny, I absolutely agree with you. You know, this is about um, people. The NHS should be about caring for people. We often create services and expect people to fit into those services. We create pathways and expect people to fit into those pathways. But actually, what we need to think about is the individual in front of us at the time. And if we flip that round to, well, I want to think about how that impacts me. So when we've done the menopause sessions, it's been about getting the right care for me, thinking about the impact on me, how I'm feeling, but also of what treatment might do. Uh, interesting, one of the patients uh, that I saw last week, one of my patients had been on the session and she came to tell me, well, you, you talked about, I need to think about the impact. Well, actually, the thing I want to change is I want to get rid of the vaginal dryness. That's the one thing I want to solve. And to, to have people think about their own care that way, not be passive recipients of healthcare, is so important to me that we think about it from an individual perspective. And I think that way we will be far more successful in everything that we try and do within the NHS. And one of the things that keeps coming up in a lot of the conversations is sleep, broken sleep, waking up in the middle of the night, feeling sweaty, having to get up and go to the toilet all the time. And the fact that people aren't getting, women aren't getting quality sleep has a huge impact. What, what things can people pay attention to? So this is one of the areas that actually HRT and oestrogen can make a big difference to, that we know that oestrogen has that impact on the way we sleep and the quality of sleep that we get. And we know that when we don't have oestrogen, all those things start to tip out of balance. And what we tend to see, and certainly a lot of patients that I've started on HRT, will automatically start to settle in terms of sleep. They'll have a settled night because they are not waking up sweating. Depending on the kind of HRT, without going into loads of detail, there's one particular progesterone that we use called eutrogestan that we deliberately prescribe at night because it has an effect of sleepiness, a side effect of sleepiness. 
and it also is anxiolytic, so it reduces anxiety levels. So that can give quite a settled night's sleep. But also from an HRT perspective and from urinary symptom perspective, so we've talked about vaginal dryness. I haven't really touched upon urinary symptoms, but we know that when we have less estrogen uh, in our bodies as a whole, it does have an impact on wanting to go to the toilet more, on leakage. So you may have always been fine and suddenly start to get that urge incontinence or stress incontinence that you've never had before. You'd be more prone to water infections. So there's a big impact down below of the lack of estrogen. Now, for most people, probably about 70, 80% of people going on to HRT, whether it be patches or gels or whichever, that will settle down many of the symptoms. But in fact, quite a few people, so at least 20%, will still need vaginal estrogen as well. And that will often improve sexual function, vaginal dryness, urinary symptoms, and generally just make things feel more comfortable down there. And all the things that just make you feel good as a human being. Absolutely. So life is much more than symptoms, isn't it? And actually the impact on uh, relationship with your partner is really important. So again, the enthusiasm comes from this is about a top-to-toe problem-solving with a person, with an individual, to try and improve the bits that are important to them and to really make sure we focus on that whole person. And I'm really pleased that you touched on the relational impacts of, of menopause whether they're partners, flatmates, children. Um, And we have focused quite a lot on women here. What would you suggest managers or partners or people who are around individuals who are going through this menopause journey pay attention to? What could they do to help? So I was really excited on the first menopause session we ran that we had a man, but I don't think we've had any men since. But I think there's something about educating everybody about menopause. It's not just a female problem. And maybe that's the direction to take things next um, with some of the sessions. So I think what should our um, partners look for or uh, managers or the male part of our population? I guess just knowing that it's a thing, being sensitive to I might not be quite as I was before. There are times when I might be me and there are times when you might not recognise me, but that's because something's going on with my hormones. So support me with it. Don't get angry with me. It's a time when relationships can be really put on strain, whether it be uh, socially, professionally or at home. And I think it's just that being kind to each other, just knowing that it's a thing and and giving people that space to talk about what they need uh, as much as you know the impact it might be having. If you were to give advice to anyone who's listening to this who might be feeling a little bit alone and might not know which pathway to take, what would you suggest? So, Shenny, it's an exciting time, I think, if if, if we can describe it as that in menopause, in that there are a whole load of resources around and a whole load of chat groups and a whole load of places where people can share things together. I think the important thing to know is that 50% of the population go through menopause. We might not all be talking about it, but you can guarantee if you're moving towards an age where you're going through menopause, many of your friends will be doing the same. So share the problem, talk about it. There are younger people, we haven't really touched on younger people going through menopause as well, but there are lots and lots of resources available for anybody that thinks they might be going through menopausal changes. There are some really good tools online, there's some really good websites, and there are some really good apps. So the Louise Newson website, menopausedoctor.co.uk, and the app that goes with that called Balance are a really good tool among many, but I recommend men Balance to many of my patients because it has a symptom tracker on it. People will come in often and say, I feel like I'm going mad. 
you know, tell me I'm not going mad, tell me I'm not going crazy. And actually, I put it by talking about it, but also looking at the app and seeing, or there are other symptom trackers as well, but seeing what kind of symptoms people suffer with, you can start to think, actually, this is normal. And yes, there are things I can do about it. So I think starting to talk about it, admit what you're feeling, uh, recognise that even weird symptoms might possibly be something related to menopause and talk to someone about it, whether it be the GP, a practice nurse, a pharmacist, a friend, start to just share that with somebody because I think it just feels better, doesn't it, to, to have it out in the open and not just trapped inside your head. And again, thinking about some of the feedback that we get from people who have been part of the workshops, the, the single most mentioned comment is, thank you, I'm not on my own. Exactly. Yeah. You know, everybody does feel that way. It does feel quite isolating when you've got symptoms that make you feel a bit crazy at times. But just knowing that there are those other people around as well makes such a difference. So running more sessions, I think, having people, encouraging people to attend those and training up workplace professionals, managers, leaders to recognise it as well is just so important so that we can start to build up those conversations much more. Thank you so much, Kath, for shining a spotlight on a really important topic that impacts on so, so many people. But not only that, also celebrating a really important part of what womanhood means and, and, and looks like. So so I think for all the people that um, have been listening to this podcast, been taking part in the workshops, just a huge thanks for all the support that you're showing. And hopefully we'll end up in a better place where we can talk about menopause in the workplace and it's part of that common conversation that we have in the way that we've been able to transform how we talk about mental health. Brilliant, thank you. And you can find out more information about the Greater Manchester Wellbeing Programme on the main series page. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to this series through your favourite podcast provider so you don't miss a single episode. And remember to tell your colleagues so they don't miss it either. And we look forward to speaking with you soon.